Now then, let's turn to the uh, passage of scripture that we were looking at in the morning, the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, and chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. And uh, you'll remember how Joseph was in a dungeon because he was falsely accused. And uh, in the meantime, God has intervened in the life of Pharaoh the king. He has sent him dreams that Pharaoh realizes to be of divine origin. And uh, he hears about Joseph and his power to understand dreams or to interpret them, which uh, Joseph, of course, emphatically states is not his own power, but something that God grants him. And uh, Joseph is taken out of the dungeon. He appears before Pharaoh and he explains the meaning of the dreams, that there will be seven years of um, plentiful harvests, followed by seven years of famine. And he advises Pharaoh to appoint officers over all the land to collect a fifth of the produce during the seven plentiful years. Let's uh, read from verse 37. Genesis 41 and verse 37. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took the signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath Paniah, and he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came. Humasenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil, and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. And uh, tonight, uh, following on from the morning, I want to look with you at these two sons of Joseph and the naming of the sons. In verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, which means to forget or to make to forget, because he says, God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And then he calls the name of the second son Ephraim, which means fruitfulness. For God, he said, 
has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, we saw Joseph's exaltation in the morning, taken in a moment of time uh, from the lowest place to the highest. Even as our Lord uh, was taken from the depths of his humiliation in the grave or in his death, immediately to the right hand of God. Now, this isn't just an exaltation to office. Of course, it is that. It's also, as we saw in the morning, um, an exaltation to a new state of life. He's given a significant new name by Pharaoh, which means that God speaks and he lives. He's also given a wife from Pharaoh. And uh, we can't just really say that this wife is from Pharaoh. In the context, a context of God's intervention and of God's blessing, this must be seen as a wife from the Lord. And the two sons that he has in the seven following years, in the years of plenty, are children from the Lord too. They are God's heritage and the fruit of the womb, his reward. And as the text tells us, Joseph names them. And Joseph takes care to name them. He's as concerned that these children are what he is himself in heart, that is, a true Hebrew and a child of God. He's as concerned about that as anything else. He makes sure that he has names or that they, he has given them names which reflect their heritage, their religion, their faith, the faith of Abraham, their forefather, his own great-grandfather, and, of course, the faith that God gave them. And uh, these names, Manasseh and Ephraim, are, of course, important, as, as names are in the Bible anyway. Thought went into names. Uh, people didn't just give children names that sounded good. In fact, that was a very small consideration. They gave them names that meant something, something to do with God, something to do with either what God had promised them or with what God had done for them in the past. So we would expect the names of Manasseh and Ephraim to be full of meaning in the life of Joseph, someone who's lived such a difficult life as Joseph had. And that, of course, is true. Joseph is very careful to relate God's dealings with himself to the names upon his children. Manasseh, because God made me forget my toil in my father's house, and Ephraim, because God made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, I think the first thing to say is that the names of the children seem to refer to the two distinct periods in Joseph's life. You could more or less break them up in two periods of around 16 years. In the first 16 or 17 years, he lived in his father's house in Canaan, a place of toil. Now, that word toil is, is a tricky word. We'll come to it later. But it was a place of difficulty and of toil. The second 17 years or so, he has lived in the land of Egypt, which he calls the land of his affliction. So the first child is remembering the first half of his life. And in connection with that first half of his life, God has made him forget it. God has made me forget all the toil and all my father's house. And in connection with the second period of his life that he's lived in Egypt, he gives his son the name Ephraim because he says, in this land now of my, of my affliction, God has actually made me fruitful. Now let's take these two sons in turn and uh, let's focus first of all on Manasseh. Forget. God made me forget my toil and my father's house. Now I'll come back, uh, like I said, to the word toil, but he's forgotten his father's house. 
And that's not a bad thing, obviously, because God made me do it, he said. God has made me forget my father's house. Now, this is a strange statement to make, and I think we have to be careful that we understand it properly. If, if you're to ask, well, how can it be right for us at any time ever to forget our father's house? I think there are two ways in which it is legitimate to forget our father's house. First of all, there's a, a forgetting that is emotional. I, I don't know, actually, of a, of a good word to replace this with, but let's, let's just use emotional at the moment. In other words, by leaving home and by marrying and setting up a family, there is a, a cleft being made. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that you, that you put a breach there or that you, that you make a division, but you can't help a division being there. As the psalmist said to the queen who was to be married to the king, you must forget your kindred all and your father's house most dear. I don't remember if I said this uh, to yourselves. I can't remember where I said it, but I remember uh, visiting a, a lady in one of the congregations I've been in, who said that when she was a young woman, she, after she got married and left home, she became terribly homesick for her father's house and was afraid she had done the wrong thing. And she went back to her father's home with her suitcases and her parents sat down with her and counselled her and told her that she had made a great decision and a great move and she was to stick with it and... Uh, to pray to the Lord. It wasn't as though, the thing is, it's not as though her, her marriage had floundered or anything of that kind. It was a, a terrible wave of nostalgia, really, uh, for her home and for her family. And her mother quoted uh, this to her. Uh, you must forget your kindred all and your father's house most dear. She went back to her husband and they were both happy and they were happy as long as they lived. So there is something in us uh, and it's right that we leave father and mother and we cleave to our wife or to our husband and then uh, we receive, God willing, our children from the Lord. So perhaps you could take this as Joseph saying, well, now my old life has gone. Perhaps all the time, even when I was in prison here, perhaps I thought that my life would resume back home. I maybe thought things would turn out in such a way that I would go back to Canaan and be a blessing to my family. Uh, but that's not going to happen. This is where my life's going to be, and God now means it to be here. In his transcendent, inscrutable providence, he has given me a wife and given me a son, sons, and he's given me a calling, and I must serve the Lord in that calling. So in that way, it's legitimate sometimes to forget your father's house in that sense. There's a second sense too in which you might sometimes need to forget your father's house. This time, not emotionally, but spiritually. Because for some people, and in fact to all of us, to one degree or another, we have to make sure that we are putting God before family that we put our love for Christ before our love for anybody else. And, um, of course, there are people in God's word who failed to some extent in this. Eli failed in it. Uh, God rebuked Eli because he had put his sons before himself. Is that not a searching thing? Uh, when you think of Eli's death falling and breaking his neck and uh, seeing his hearing his sons had been slain and uh, the ark being taken captive. And part of it was because he had not uh, put rain on his own sons. David failed here too. And we saw recently some of the tragic consequences of that. But Christ warns us against it in very difficult words, very, very graphic and searching words. When great multitudes followed the Lord during the days of his popularity, he turned to them. And he said, now notice he takes the initiative. If anyone comes to me, and this is very strong, and does not hate his father and mother, 
wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, and his own life also. Now, that's a clue that uh, this is a spiritual thing. Yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, that's his previous family, wife and children, that's the family that he's raising, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the word hate, I think, is chosen here, as it sometimes is in the Bible, uh, to convey something very strongly. It, it doesn't mean the idea of active hatred. What it does mean is that your love for Christ is so great as to effectively be that. In other words, it would lead you to a conduct which might appear like that. Not so much the love for Christ needs priority in your life and mine. Sometimes, friends, we forget what the Christian faith demands. Sometimes we forget what a thing Christianity really is. We forget that we are able uh, or called upon to bear our cross and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And unless we do so, we cannot be his disciples. As he says himself in this very passage, likewise, he says, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now that forsaking is a hard thing. It means essentially that everything else is second to Christ. In comparison with love, it is, as it were, hatred. God first and everything else second. So in that respect, uh, there's another way in which it is legitimate, legitimate to leave or to forget your father's house. Now, having said that, there's, there is a way, of course, in which you must never forget your father's house. And I think Joseph was, was very careful in this respect. There's a way in which you must never forget your father's house. You must never forget it in, in the sense of loving it and in the sense of praying for it. And as we'll see later, I don't think Joseph ever stopped doing this. Praying for his father. His mother had passed away, but praying for his father, uh, praying for his father's other wife, praying for his full brother Benjamin, and praying for his other half-brothers. I don't think he ever stopped doing that. And of course, um, it's right that we should do that. Um, and the proof of it comes really when he meets his brothers after uh, just a few years after this, perhaps very soon after naming his children, uh, when he meets them. And after he's dealt with them, as God requires him to deal with them, he seems to deal with them in a very strange way, but it's only the way that God wants him to deal with them. It's not because he wants to deal with them like that. I mean, if, if Joseph had, had done things his own way, he would have broken down in tears and welcomed them straight away. But God wanted them dealt with differently for their sakes. But when that was over, he said, don't be grieved, he says, or angry with yourselves. I am Joseph. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But he says, don't be grieved and don't be angry with yourselves. God sent me here before you to preserve life. Now, Joseph could never have spoken like that. He could never have dealt with them like that and embraced them like that, fallen on their necks and kissed them. He could never have done any of that unless he still loved them and prayed for them all the time. And in that respect, even if your parents have put you out of the house for becoming a Christian. Now, I, I don't know if I'm speaking to anybody in that situation. In our culture, it's probably highly unlikely. Although, I don't know, maybe it's going to get increasingly likely. Certainly in other cultures, that's what becoming a Christian costs them. And we must never forget it. It means being put out of the house and being considered dead by your father and mother. But you never forget them in that you love them and you pray for them. So how then did Joseph forget his father's house? He calls his first son Manasseh, reflecting on his first 17 years of life, and he says, 
God has made me forget my toil and my father's house. Well, I think the key to understanding the way in which Joseph forgot his father's house is to understand this little word toil. God has made me to forget my toil. Now, it's an interesting word because it's normal meaning. And I don't really know why it hasn't been translated like that here or in the King James Version, but its more usual meaning is evil or suffering. Let me take just one example of that. Um, in, he, in Habakkuk's prophecy, there's a verse in chapter one that we often quote, and uh, many of you perhaps quote it in prayer, where Habakkuk says to God, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and you cannot look upon wickedness. Now, of course, Habakkuk is asking this question when he's perplexed at the evil all around him. And he's essentially saying to God, how can you, how can you actually tolerate this? How even in your great sovereignty can you tolerate this? Because you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and you cannot look upon wickedness. Now, this word wickedness, the Hebrew word behind it, is exactly the same Hebrew word as is translated toil here. It's often translated as mischief in the Psalms. And really the leading idea in it is persecution. It is a mischief or an evil done by one person or even a group of persons to another. And I think when we take it in that sense, we, under we understand exactly what Joseph is saying. God has made me forget the persecution, the evil, and all my father's house. Now, there he looks back, and what sticks out to him in many ways over the time is just how difficult his life was as a boy growing up. A boy growing up godly in an ungodly family. Now, some of you may have the situation where you're trying to live a godly Christian life in school or a college or a university or something like that. Um, but but this, this poor young man has it in his own household. And um, it's easy, because of our very familiarity with the story, it's easy to minimize the pain involved in it when his own brothers are so cruel to himself. I mean, this is the boy who left on an errand an errand of goodwill in obedience to his father, an errand of goodwill towards his brothers, and he never came back home. He never came back home. The only part of him that came back home was the robe that his brothers had dipped in the blood of an animal that they had killed, presenting it to his father as proof that Joseph was dead and not alive. And not only is he carried away to a, a distant land as, as a worthless slave at just 17 years of age, absolutely all alone in the world, except hence that God was with him, except that God was with him. He also has the knowledge that his father is broken with grief, believing him to be dead. And I'm sure that in prison, Joseph must have struggled to preserve his love for people who had wronged him so much. And he must have struggled to continue praying for people who had hurt himself so much. I know Joseph is like the Savior. And I know there's a kind of sinlessness in his life, in the narrative of his life, that reflects the sinlessness of the Savior. But he is not the Savior. And he is not sinless. And he would somehow be less than a sinful man if thoughts didn't come into that, dungeon, into that dark, dingy dungeon when the fetters were coming into his soul, where he was, well, if not blaming God, then certainly blaming his brothers, blaming his brothers. But he's able to forget it. He's able to forget it. Now, very often in life, our tendency is to forget the things that we should remember. 
For example, in a day of pleasure and wealth where everyone does their own thing, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In a day of backsliding, when people seem to make some progress and then go backwards, remember Lot's wife. In a day of ingratitude, when people are prone to be unthankful for what God has done for them, remember the way in which the Lord thy God has led you. But as well as forgetting what we should remember, we're prone to remember what we should forget. And the things that we should forget are the wrongs done to us by others. And in the dungeon, it would be easy for Joseph to faint under this strange chastisement from God when he had done no wrong. It would be easy to despise his trial, or as I said, to to blame God, or if not to blame God, then to blame his brethren. But amazingly, through these years, God kept him in love, and he kept him in faith. And it's only fair to say that Joseph kept himself in the love of God too. Uh, Maybe your own greatest need tonight is not actually to remember anything, but to forget something. You know, there are people who have a lot of difficulty in forgetting. They forget a wrong done by somebody perhaps to them years ago. They can't get over this wrong. They, They want to avenge this wrong. And of course, it'll always be easy to find verses in the scripture or parts of the moral um, character within you that would justify doing such a thing. Well, I need to put that right. I can't, I can't let him away with such a thing. And surely I can put matters right and execute vengeance in the name of God. Not easy to forget. But Christ forgot, did he not? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you say to me, oh, well, yes, I know that. And I know we must emulate Christ, but at the end of the day, we can't really get there. His sinless purity just means that he always sets a standard that's going to be too high for me to attain to. And even though I know I'm called to it, even though I know I'm to emulate the spirit that Christ himself demonstrated, I know that I'll never get there. Ah, yes, but, This is Joseph who did it. You can't say that your betrayal was greater than Joseph's, can you? Can you honestly read what Joseph suffered at the hands of Judah and Simeon and everyone else, stuck in a waterless pit and left to die, and then delivered only to be sold, just treated like nothing, treated like dirt by those who were supposed to be your own brothers? those who were supposed to be in the cause of God, can you say that your betrayal was greater than his? It's no wonder that he looks back uh, on his time in Canaan and he sees it as a time of pain and suffering, a time of betrayal, a time of persecution. But God saying, let it go. Let it go. And God saying, forget it and leave it be. And in fact, maybe, maybe God is even saying something more than that. And I've no doubt that God is saying something more than that to him too. After all, Christ said this, I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. That's difficult. But so is this, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now that fits exactly, does it not? Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Because he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What's more, he says this, if you love those who love you, well, what reward have you? In other words, what's special about that? Because he says, do not even the tax collectors do the same. People who are drunk in a pub uh, love those who love them. They love each other. If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And can we not apply that to the prayer? 
if you only pray for those who pray for you, uh, what's that? If you only pray for those who are kind to you, what's that? But if you pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, then you will be sons of your Father in heaven. And that surely is what Joseph is saying here. Lord, you've helped me to forget. Um, Many a time, perhaps, in the dungeon, I wanted to remember. And I wanted to remember what they did. And perhaps I thought maybe at now and again in my darkest moments that a time would come when I could avenge these things. But you took me through that. And you kept me through that. And I love my brethren more than I loved them then. So you have made me to forget my persecution and my father's house. That's going to be an important thing, you see, because God isn't finished with Joseph and his brethren. All this goes back, and um, I think when, whenever you look at Joseph, you always have to keep going back to the dreams that he got as a young boy. These dreams were effectively saying that God would use him, that his brethren would bow down to him. And he knew that the meaning of that is that he would be a means of God's blessing to his family. Now, it's no wonder that he lost sight of that in the dungeon. But having come out of the dungeon, having got a a position of influence and power, being settled with a wife and children, he won't really be surprised to meet his brothers again. He won't be surprised to meet them. He knows that his life with them somehow isn't finished, but how thankful he is that when he meets them, he's forgotten their sin. And perhaps it'll be one of the things that will overpower uh, his own family so much, the depth of his own love towards them, that he didn't reward their reviling with reviling. Uh, When they struck him and persecuted him, he did not return the same. So, friend, let it go. Bury it. And uh, once you've got the spirit of forgiveness, one day perhaps your enemy may come up and ask you for that forgiveness. And because you've got the spirit of that forgiveness, you'll be able to give it to them. Uh, You're not in charge of their repentance, but you are in charge of your own spirit. And if you cultivate the spirit of forgiveness, you'll be able to give it when they ask it. But he has a second son. And he names this second son something that sums up the second 16 or 17 years of his life thus far, his time in Egypt. And he sums it up like this. He called the name of the second Ephraim because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, Egypt wasn't the land of his persecution. It was the land of his trouble. Now, (laughs) I was thinking about this in a certain way um, while I was in preparation for it. It struck me how remarkable a thing it is that the sufferings that Joseph got in Egypt were not for being a Christian explicitly. They were just simply uh, troubles that he was given. Certainly the devil was behind them. I've no doubt doubt about that. But at no point, I think, has anyone thrown him into a prison or dealt badly with him because he was a believer. But how different that was at home. It was precisely because he was a believer that he was given so much difficulty at home. They rejected the word of God from his lips. What struck me about that is that he was persecuted in the church but only afflicted in the world. Isn't that strange? In the land where people ought to have recognized him and embraced him and had fellowship with him, he was despised and rejected. When he came to his own, his own received him not. But in Egypt, they only afflict and trouble him, but not for his faith. In any case, I just mentioned that in the passing. Um. But when he refers to the land of affliction, 
He's referring to Egypt as the place where he suffered as a slave, was treated as a slave. And after a, after a momentary recognition where he's given a measure of authority in Potiphar's household, his world collapses. His, his righteousness is impugned, his integrity. He is charged by Potiphar's wife of, of trying to make advances to her when the reverse was the case. He isn't believed. And uh, I've often thought it perhaps strange that he was only put into a dungeon. I have sometimes wondered, and I suppose I'm not the only person who's wondered whether Potiphar suspected that perhaps this might not be the case. But in any case, it's severe enough for Joseph. He's flung in there where, as we read in the morning, his feet were hurt with the fetters. And I don't know how long he was in there. I'm quite sure he was in there for years. Now, all these, most of that 17 years was just plain hardship. Just plain hardship. But looking back, what does he say? God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, let's first of all say what he's not saying. He doesn't mean by this that God has made me wealthy in Egypt. He most certainly has. He can hardly believe how his circumstances have changed. Now, that was God's prerogative. It always is. He bestows wealth where he sees fit. But that's not his life pursuit. This doesn't really mean anything to Joseph. And sometimes people who have been uh, well without it know how little value it is as well as how much value it is. That's not what he means by saying God made me fruitful. Neither does he actually mean that God has given me children. I know that the womb's fruit is God's reward, and I suppose it is an aspect of his fruitfulness here. There's no doubt about that too, but I've also got no doubt that that's not his primary meaning. In other words, just as the forgetting of the first part of his life was a spiritual forgetting, so I've no doubt that the fruit bearing in the second part of his life is a spiritual fruit bearing. He's not talking about external, visible things like that. He's talking about the fruit that God has produced in his life. From me is your fruit found. God has made me fruitful. Just as God helped me to forget my persecution from my enemies, even in my father's house, who else could have made me forget that but God? So God has now made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. What, what fruit is it? Well, there's only one fruit that the Christian is really interested in. Is that not true? The only fruit that you're interested in is the fruit of the Spirit in your life. I hope you live your life in pursuit of it. I hope you value that fruit more than anything else in this world. The fruit of the Spirit that comes from your union with the Lord Jesus Christ. When I say that you value it more than anything else, what I mean by that is this. I don't mean that you value it more than Christ or anything like that, but, but I do mean something specific. If I was to ask you, what is the goal of your salvation? There are certain things that you could answer to that which would be wrong or incomplete or insufficient. For example, if you say well, the goal of our of our, um, of our um conversion is our justification. That's the big thing. That's the great blessing to be right with God. Well, I would say to you that it's not. I would say to you that that's only a means to an end. If you say, well, the great thing that we get from God's work in us is our adoption, I would say, well, that's higher still, all right. But that's still not what God has got for us. But if you're to say it's sanctification, culminating in glorification, in other words, if you're to say, well, the ultimate goal of salvation is to make us like Christ, I would say, yes, you've got it. In other words, the ultimate goal of your sanctification is not actually to do with your status. And high as your adoption is, it's still a status. Suppose for a moment, um, <clears throat> suppose for a moment that you were adopted 
and still a sinner, and you are going to stay a sinner forever. How wonderful then would your adoption be? Well, not so wonderful at all. So anything that involves a change of status is not the goal of your salvation. The goal of your salvation is what involves a change of state, not a change of status. In other words, that you be holy as he is holy. So tonight, um, as a Christian, let's say you are a Christian tonight. Your goal is not justification, you're justified already. Neither is your goal adoption because you're adopted already. But your goal is holiness. Holiness. Because that is what you're being called to. Be ye holy. For I am holy, says the Lord. And that is the fruit that God wants to see in your life. And I hope it's the fruit that you want to see too. O Lord, make me fruitful. Make us all fruitful. Now, it's interesting here that Joseph makes a very close connection between affliction and fruitfulness. God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. I'm sure the more Joseph thinks about it, the more he realizes that that land of affliction was not just where God made him fruitful, but the means by which God made him fruitful. Um, A lot of our fruit comes through affliction. That's just because we're sinners. And affliction is needful. It's the the knife that the vine dresser wields to cut into us as branches in order to make us fruitful. Where else do we become fruitful as sinners except in the land of our affliction? He purges it. He purges the branch that it might bring forth more fruit. There's something about sin that just makes us gravitate to slothfulness, fruitlessness, and uselessness. And God has to bring us into situations where the fruit can begin to appear again. And these are always situations where he has to teach us again that my grace is sufficient for you. And again, he has to teach us that my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And we discover with the apostles and with others that it's only as death works in us, that life works in us. As death works in us, life will even work in others. So that affliction is needful. It's needful. And we need to profit from it. The first fruit that affliction brings into your life is prayer. Maybe I can join that actually with meditation because the two go hand in hand all the time. Prayer and meditation. That's where that's where he took Joseph. I've no doubt that the dungeon was his sanctuary. That's what God can do with a dungeon. He can turn it into a closet. He can turn it into a secret place. That's why it was the best place to be in the palace. I mean, the place to be is where God is. And uh, the important thing is that we turn every chastisement into prayer. Because the chastisement won't begin its work until it does turn us to prayer. Remember, we were um, highlighting that recently in connection with chastisement in Hebrews 12. No chastisement is joyful for the present. Well, I'm sure Joseph could say that in the prison. No chastisement is joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields what? The peaceable fruit of righteousness. And righteousness here is a general term for the fruit that comes out. Let's, uh, we'll see that later on. So it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. To whom? Is it to those who have experienced it? No, chastisement doesn't always work. Even if it's well-intentioned, and even if it's well-administered, it doesn't always work. The Lord's chastisements didn't always work against Israel. That's not a fault in the chastisement or in the one who administered it. Why should you be stricken anymore? No, he says that it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been 
trained or exercised by it. In other words, the first thing that chastisement did in the lives of those who profited from it was it put them to prayer. So God took Joseph where he wants to take us all, and that is to the throne of grace. You tell me how anybody is going to advance in the things of God without being taken into a life of prayer. It is utterly and absolutely impossible to achieve anything in the cause of God without being at the throne of grace in prayer. Impossible. And that's why Joseph is being trained in the dungeon. Now, of course, if you were put into a dungeon, you would think, well, what possible use is this? How can I serve God in a dungeon? Well, by being trained and being trained in prayer so that when God takes you out of it, not only will you have something to do, but you will do it well because you've learned the lessons of the darkness of the secret place and being alone with God. So that's the first fruit of the land of affliction, a prayer life. And uh, that prayer life, I'm sure, as I mentioned earlier, extended to his enemies. He really learned to pray for those who spitefully used him and persecuted him. Now, this prayer, you want to understand the fruit. It's this prayer that opens up the channels through which the through which the fruit actually comes. Prayer unclogs the channels. If you're fruitless, well, prayer unclogs them. And the first fruits that appear from prayer are what we would call the inward graces of love and joy and peace. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, we're told, are, are more plentiful than that. Uh, They're listed for us in Galatians, Galatians chapter uh, 5, where we're told that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, the first three are distinct from the rest. Uh, Prayer floods the heart with these inward graces of love, joy, and peace. Now, these are the graces that control the rest. They regulate your conduct. Once your heart is filled with love, once it's filled with joy in your salvation and joy in your Savior, once it's filled with the peace of God ruling in your hearts, you're ready to produce the fruit that goes outwards towards other people. And what's that fruit? Well, we just saw it, long-suffering, kindness goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These cover our relationships with other people. I hope we understand that. Prayer first unclogs the heart, opens the channels. In through the word of God flows love and joy and peace. The great inward motivating graces, which then yield these fruits in your life. Here's the fruit of long-suffering. Here's the fruit of kindness. Here's the fruit of goodness. Here's the fruit of faithfulness. Here's the fruit of gentleness. And here's the fruit of self-control. And you know, people taste that fruit. They can eat it and they can taste it. Respectfully speaking, God takes it and tastes it in the sense in which a sacrifice is a sweet-smelling fragrance or savour to God, so this fruit is sweet to his taste. And again, where do you see it? Well, in his dealings with his brethren. He deals with them as someone who has long suffered them, someone who has been longing to be kind to them, longing to be good to them, someone who is faithful to them, even when they're unfaithful to him, someone who is incredibly gentle with them, and someone who is self-controlled with them. And uh, I think I mentioned in the morning that there's a relationship between forget, forgetting and fruitfulness, or um, forgetting and fruit-bearing. 
It's interesting that Manasseh is born first. Because, because you can't be fruitful without forgetting. The first part of the journey really is putting the past behind. It's burying what needs to be buried. It's, it's only then that you can really produce fruit. Is that not right? I mean, who can genuinely be long-suffering, kind, goodness, and faithful as long as you're brooding with resentment over past wrongs and past persecutions or even present persecutions? How can you? It's absolutely impossible to be fruit-bearing. Forget. Forget. Now, it doesn't end there. In a few years' time, and this is just briefly, um, while, the, while the two sons are still young, and after, after Jacob's father has, has come down to, to, to Israel, and sorry, to Egypt and settled with them there, uh, Joseph hears the news that his father Jacob is dying, and um, Joseph goes with his two sons to visit his father. And Jacob does something very strange. He he asks Joseph to bring the two boys before him. And he says that from now on, he says, they are mine. He uses the language of adoption. I I know you've given birth to them in Egypt, he says, but um, their people are, are going to be what they are, Hebrews. They're coming back home. They're coming back home. Let me bless them. And Joseph, of course, approaches his father very carefully. And uh, he's regulated everything. He he maneuvers Ephraim to Jacob's left hand. And he maneuvers Manasseh, the oldest son, to Jacob's right hand. Because that's how Joseph wants them blessed. He wants the double blessing upon Manasseh. He wants Manasseh to be the great tribe. But uh, Jacob, in his old age, guided by God, in that inscrutable way in which God sometimes guides, he just crosses his hands. And he places his right hand on Ephraim's head and his left hand on Manasseh's head. Now, Joseph immediately recoils against this, but he doesn't intervene, or at least he tries to intervene, but his father stops him. And Joseph recognizes that this is how, how it must be, because... He says, Joseph will be especially fruitful in the tribe of Ephraim. That will be the tribe that is greatly blessed. Now, let me just take you speedily through the scriptures and see what happens. Um, When it comes for time for Jacob to bless his own family, he blesses Joseph with a blessing that has to do with fruit. I'm just going to read this for you. These are beautiful words. Think about them as we read them. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. That's beside a well of water. That's the grace of God. His branches run over the wall. This means that he's going to be a blessing to those on the outside. But then there's opposition. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him. But his bow, his bow, remained in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. This is a little messianic reference that just shoots in here. He's made strong by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you. Now listen to the fruitfulness of this. With blessings of heaven above, Blessings of the deep that lies beneath, that's rain and fruit. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb, in other words, plenty children, an expanding tribe. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. If we fast forward 300 years or so to Deuteronomy, when the tribes have entered the promised land, Moses is about to die 
and he's moved by God to bless the tribes. He comes to Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. Blessed of the Lord is his land with the precious things of heaven, with the dew and the deep lying beneath, with the precious fruits of the sun and the precious produce of the months, with the precious things of the earth and its fullness, and the good will of him who dwelt in the bush. Oh, that's the most precious thing of all. Let the blessing come on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers, his glory is like a firstborn bull, and his horns like the horns of a wild ox. Together he shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. Now this has got an interesting pregnancy in it. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim and the thousands of Manasseh. Notice how the firstborn blessing has gone to Ephraim. The ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. But then, as the years pass, tragedy and rebellion. And just before Ephraim is taken into captivity, Hosea the prophet is sent to them and he says, fruit, he says, you're bringing forth fruit for yourself. You're feeding on the wind spiritually. And God says, oh, Ephraim, how can I give you up? How can I let you go? And at last he is let go taken captive by the Assyrians and as they're taken away captive, you remember how we saw recently that um, there's a picture of Rachel uh, weeping uh, for, well, for her children, the children of Ephraim in the north and the children of Benjamin too in the south. Rachel was Ephraim's grandmother. She's weeping for her children. But the prophet closes in hope, does he not? He closes in hope. Return, he says, to Israel. Return to the Lord your God. Take words with you. That, that's, that's prayer, is it not? Confession. Take words with you and say, take away our iniquity and receive us graciously. And God says in response, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. I will be like the Jew to Israel, to Ephraim. He shall grow like the lily, lengthening his roots like Lebanon. Here's the fruit again. His branches shall spread and his beauty like an olive tree. And those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a wine. And their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Um, what's telling that telling is surely but that a day will come when the children of Ephraim will come back yet. Why? Because they're in the land of their affliction. And you know they've been in the land of their affliction for hundreds of years. Right now they're in a long drawn out process of return to the promised land, which is still a land of affliction. Although watch how God is helping them and protecting them from their enemies. Watch your, that I always say to you, keep your eye on Israel, keep your eye on Jerusalem, but it's still the land of an affliction. Until that time comes, is it shortly? Is it shortly? When they will look at him whom they have pierced and they will become fruitful in the land of their affliction again. Um, don't you be cast down if you're afflicted. Uh, turn it to prayer. Once you unclog that channel, well, who knows what God has for you. Forget the past. Reach forward in the land of your affliction and God will open an opportunity for you, just as he did for Joseph. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray to follow in the footsteps of those who have gone before the apostle called us to imitate him, even as he imitated Christ. And uh, surely in this great patriarch, we see the life of a man who followed the Lord. And uh, we pray that we would endure affliction as he did. That we would forget the wrong and the persecution. And uh, that we would 
give ourselves to producing fruit in this present world. We thank you, O Lord, for every call and encouragement to do so. And even to a disobedient Ephraim, your hands are still stretched out. And uh, there is nothing that we cannot accomplish through the love of Christ and his empowerment. And we ask everything in his name. Amen. <clears throat> now let's uh, close our service singing in Psalm 92. And uh, <clears throat> the close of this psalm reminds us that um, this fruit bearing is a lifelong thing. Maybe the channels have been stopped for a, a while in your own life, and maybe you think that they can never be opened again, but God has afflicted you, maybe in a way that you have never been afflicted before. There's a purpose in that. Psalm 92, verse 12. But like the palm tree flourishing shall be the righteous one. He shall like to the cedar grow that is in Lebanon. Those that within the house of God are planted by his grace, they shall grow up and flourish all in our God's holy place. And in old age, when others fade, they fruit still forth shall bring. They shall be fat now, that's through prayer, and full of sap, and a or forever always be flourishing. To show that upright is the Lord. He is a rock to me, and he from all unrighteousness is altogether free. The tune is contemplation, the last four stanzas. Let's uh, receive the blessing of the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <clears throat>